Insider Side of Serial Killers here on the Boom Bastic Media Network. I am your host, Keith Rovere. I'm an author and collector of true crime art and memorabilia, and your host for this evening. Uh, thanks, everybody, who reached out this week. Uh, a lot of positive things about last week's podcast uh, with Robert Bardo. It was, it was the part two. Um, everybody's really fascinated when they hear people talk about empathy, violent offenders talking about empathy, or serial killers talking about empathy, because a lot of them can't feel it. Um, and I really wanted to focus a lot of that uh, on on my conversation with Robert. Um, he told me in the past, uh, not for po- for the podcast, and I've known Robert for for many years, um, about he has a hard time feeling empathy, and that's why we really wanted to focus on you know, can empathy be taught? All the classes that he, he talked about teaching empathy, and um, you know, you really can't. Yeah, you know, really. I mean, if your brain, I, I've talked about this, not, or wrote about this in my book, and I talk about it all the time. Um, if your brain doesn't have the ability to feel something, you know, all the classes in the world aren't going to be able to help you to feel something. Um, or, you know, I, I wrote extensively about the amygdala, uh, where you experience fear, uh, empathy, or that rational point before you do something stupid. You know, hey, you might not want to do this. You know, well, it doesn't work. You, know, you can't teach something that doesn't work. And if you listen, I asked him at one point, because he had mentioned about the crimes and shootings that happened. I think it was in Texas. Uh, and I asked him very specifically, how did that make you feel? I emphasized feel, not taught. Um, and he didn't, he didn't answer. And he, I don't think he can't, really. Because um, one thing you can say, oh, I feel bad. But you know, when you get into the feeling of, of empathy, um, and I knew before he said he had a hard time feeling it, if, if he could feel it at all. And you notice when he answered, he just went back to what he thought other people might have been the motive behind doing the crime itself. Didn't really answer that question because I don't think he can answer that question. Uh, nor can anybody who really don't feel, you know, empathy. Uh, but yeah, a lot of great feedback on that, uh, which is great. I appreciate it. Um, today, uh, somebody I've known for a very long time, um, probably, probably about four or five years, something like that. Um, Bill Holbert, William Holbert, Wild Bill Holbert. Uh, I was on one of my first episodes. Um, I've known for a while and um, heard about my books and the things that I've been doing, you know, in the rehabilitation um, aspect of everything and reaching out and encouraging those who've been incarcerated for a long time. And I helped him publish his book, Long Live the King Wild Bill, which is on Amazon. It's a great book. Um, everybody should get it. We talk about you know pretty extensively in the first podcast. You can go back and either the first or second one I think I did. And uh, he's in a Panamanian prison. Um, he was a hitman. Um, he'll talk a little bit about that. We went pretty detailed in our first podcast. We don't get into much of that today. Um, about what he did, why he did it, as far as the murders themselves uh, concerned, um, and, and as you know, he's at one of the worst prisons, uh, Panamanian prisons for sure, and one of the worst prisons of the world. I mean, only if you compare it to Russia, Siberia, you know, and there's work camps. But I mean, he has running water twice a day if he's lucky for a brief amount of time. Uh, you know, think about that. You know, you got an upset stomach and you can't flush your toilet for you know five or six hours. There's it, a lot, a lot, a lot of nastiness there. Very little medical care. Uh, it's a place where you can smuggle guns in, and we're going to get into that today. Uh, certainly plenty of drugs. Um, there was a shooting there recently, um, a few crazy shootings uh, over the past year or two there, and uh, we're going to get into that also. Uh, they got Wi-Fi blockers right now, so it's kind of hard for him to get a, a cell phone signal. I mean, he has a social media page, very accessible. We're going to get to his social media pages, how you can reach out to him. Um 
Um, he has the best voice for podcasting. <laughs> if you're familiar with him or seen any of his videos, uh, not videos, you know, the, uh, the voices that he does, um, not voices, what the hell am I talking about? The, the, uh, um, uploads he does on YouTube. It's almost like a daily inspirational, um, post, if you will. Uh, so you can go check that out and we'll give, we'll give you the link in a little bit. Uh, so let's bring in wild bill. Now, I've known you, obviously, for many years. The one thing I don't know too much about uh, is your childhood. So why don't we start by uh, telling everybody a little bit about your, your childhood, your relationship uh, with your parents, and what did you want to be when you were just, uh, before you were Wild Bill, when you were uh, Little William, you know? <laughs> so what was uh, your childhood like? Well, my childhood, I'll tell you something about that's true about nostalgia. Nostalgia is dangerous because when you look backwards, sometimes you remember all of the good and none of the bad. But I'll be honest with you. As a child, I think I was thinking. I think about it recently. I've actually been thinking a lot about my childhood, and I don't understand if there was something wrong with me genetically, or something that gave me a predisposition to be a bad guy, or something. Because I had a really good childhood. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but it was pretty damn close to perfect. I grew up in the mountains of Western North Carolina, and and I was born in '79, so I really grew up in the '80s as a child. My childhood was all spent through the '80s. You know, the '90s was my adolescence, my teenage years, and so I was a child during the '80s. And I can't imagine a better place or a better time to grow up to be a child than in Western North Carolina in that time period. It was still very southern, very rural. I grew up on a my family, my grandfather built an apple orchard and a cattle ranch out of a huge piece of property that he inherited in the 1950s. And so my father was born in 60, 1960, and he was raised on that property. And then I, we, for the first five years of my life, lived in a little corner, a little cabin on that property while my father built us a house. And he built a house in the, in the next town over, actually, which was scandalous because all of the family lived on the farm. And my father was a rebel, you know. And so my father, uh, he built a little, he built a little, a little house, a little ranch-style house, and that's what he did for the first five years of my life. He, we worked on the farm, obviously, my grandfather's farm, but also my father was a carpenter. He built houses, and so, and he worked for a guy named I don't want to say the guy's name because he, who knows? But anyway, we worked for this really good guy who was who was a friend of our family my whole, my whole life, um, who was also who was a building contractor. He worked for the guy. So, so I grew up. The first five years of my life, there's a little pond. I mean, like I'm talking about something out of, you know, just the most storybook Americana existence, especially Southern American existence. Um, on this farm, I, I was really, because of the farm and because of the way that we lived in it, way out in the rural area, a child grows up fast, meaning you, you grow up with lots of responsibilities and stuff, and you grow up being very capacitated, not incapacitated, on the contrary, capacitated, very very capable, a very capable person. Like I remember being 11 years old and driving the tractor to, to spray the apples. And I remember learning to drive a, I, by the time I was 12 years old, my, my grandfather had this old 1975 Chevrolet POS, beast of shit, beat all the hell, pickup truck, just a two wheel drive, six cylinder thing. It was a farm truck, you know, and it was the truck that he beat the shit out of. It didn't even have a tag on it. And they would send me to the little town, to the store, you know, drive on the main highway down to the store and back. And when I was 12 years old, to pick up stuff. And it was like one of them that shifted three on the tree, you know, like really difficult automobile to drive, actually. And by the time I was 12 years old, I had it mastered, you know. And so, I mean, we were, I was really, I really, really taught independence. 
Um, I had an interview the other day with a guy from England, and I, I told him that, you know, from the time I was 10 years old, we used to, I used to go hunting, you know, alone on the, on the property, hunting deer and squirrels. And he, like, he couldn't believe that, and I don't think that's quite so magnificent to an American, you know, but like the other countries, they couldn't imagine somebody being capacitated. Capacitated is a word they use in Spanish. Wouldn't, couldn't find somebody being trained with a firearm at such a young age. But and I don't think that any of it, and I want to be really clear, none of that firearm training had anything to do with me being a bad guy later. I, on the contrary, actually, I, I can't remember. Everybody, you know, rifles and stuff were just a part of our lives there. And and I don't remember everybody, anybody ever being shot, and I certainly don't ever remember thinking I'm going to shoot somebody with a rifle or something or a shotgun or something. That was for like, you know, it was a tool. Anyway, so my childhood, to, just to wrap it all up, I mean, the 1980s was the time I grew up. I remember when the Challenger exploded. That's kind of like my first real. I was at, I was in kindergarten or first grade. I was in first grade, and I remember coming home and and everybody was sitting around on television like my grandmother i remember her her reaction yeah, i mean it was like breaking news and then the challenger blew up and she, and i don't know if i was out of school that day or if i'd come home from school because i think it was like in a mo- in the morning hours when that happened but i remember her putting her hand over her mouth and being like oh my god i remember that i can i can see her doing it even now and we watched as it blew up and i didn't i i, I grasped even then i think that was i don't know what year it was 84 86 but I grasped that something big had happened, you know, and um, something terrible. I remember that, and, and I remember we had this dog named Bigfoot, and Bigfoot was like <laughs> the meanest dog in town, you know. He was like the really badass of the, all the dogs, you know, and uh, he was a farm dog, and he he would he would sleep. Sometimes he would sleep. He was like my best friend, you know, and I was a little bitty. But he was a mean-ass dog. I mean, he really was a, a monster-ass, a big-ass dog. He was like a cross between a German Shepherd and a Rottweiler or something. He was he was a big-ass dog, and, and, and that's why they called him Bigfoot. And they had given him to my father in high school, and and, and I remember sitting on the front steps, you know, and, and Bigfoot, like, pawing at me, you know, like, pet me when I was little. And, and I, I don't know, I just think of this. I, mean, I think back on it, and I would, like, love for any child today to grow up in that environment. It was such a good and healthy environment. I had two parents. We went to church every Sunday, not on Wednesday night, but went to church occasionally, on the rarest occasion we'd go Wednesday night. We went to church every Sunday, and, and you know, and before we sat down to eat at night, we prayed, and, I mean, it was just a very wholesome, you know, like the perfect childhood. I really believe that for a middle-class Caucasian man. So, so that was my childhood. And then I, I also, I wonder sometimes, you know, I stop and I think, like, how the hell did I get from there to here? And I, I, I don't know. It's a strange thing, really. And so, when I used childhood hopes, I, I remember telling my parents that I wanted to be a doctor, but I think that's because they wanted to hear that. I don't ever actually remember. I drew pictures of me as a doctor when I was a kid, but I don't actually ever remember thinking I want to study medicine and help people. It was just like I think they wanted me to be a doctor or something. Especially my grandparents wanted me to be a doctor. You know, be a doctor. So that, that, that kind of shit that up. That <laughs> yeah, you know, for me, um, you know, I was a baseball player, you know, on the all-star team, really didn't get in any trouble at all. Um, I guess it was around 14 years old. Um, there were some older kids in their neighborhood. I used to hang out at this park. I used to ride my bike down there. But they'd be smoking and drinking. I was like, oh, that's cool, man. And, uh, and next thing you know, I became one of the bad boys. You know, started transitioning to, you know, just being uh, from, you know, goody-goody, you know, to uh, – 
you know, growing my hair out, smoking pot, you know, drinking, you know, all the, you know, 14, 15, and 14 through 17 was like my 60s. I was a total hippie, and it was like a little transition, but nothing, never, nothing, you know, too crazy. Uh, but what up for you? I mean, I'm assuming you didn't go, you know, right from, you know, just being a little rebellious kid, you know, to murder, becoming a hitman. Um, but did you start hanging out with the wrong crowd? And, and, and what did you start off, you know, with, with like smaller crimes work your way up, or what happened? Like, what, what was that transition into Wild Bill? You know, I think that happened to me, too, what you said. I think that I went through a period of time, I think, in the 10th grade where I almost failed out of school, out of high school. And the only thing that kept me in school is I had to have decent enough grades to be eligible to play football. Football really saved me and kept me in high school. I think that probably happens to a lot of young men who are football players, you know, especially guys who, well, anyway. But that happened to me. I I started hanging out with people who smoked dope and and, and, and doing bad things, and I, I really... I remember my best friend was a guy named Chris, and I won't give his last name, but he said to me one time, he said, man, I think you're turning into a fuck-up, you know, one of them fuck-ups that lives like in a, you know, anyway, I don't want to say anything derogatory about anybody, but, but that's what he said, and, and it made me think, and then, and then, and then I, my football coach called me, he's like, hey, you failed, like, every class last semester, I'm like, you're a smart guy, you're, gonna not, you're not going to be eligible next year to play football, what the hell's wrong with you, and, and a lot, and the people really worked on me that way and and my family didn't know it. i had it hidden from my family and my football coach really helped me get my head out of my ass he was a i still hear his voice not not in his own voice but the the the, the kind of type of his negative reinforced motivation really works well for me i mean even for my life like i a lot of times i'll think you stupid ass what are you doing you know that's the kind of you know, get your head out of your ass, and that's like the kind of motivation. But it's like with love, you know. I mean, he was like really a great guy, like trying to help me, and he did help me because I almost failed out of school in the tenth grade, and, and it was because of that, like running around with people who were smoking dope who didn't have any aspirations of anything at all, didn't even have jobs. You know, older guys, like you said, like like your thing too, older guys, and then like the first crimes, like I didn't really start committing crimes, like actual crimes, until I was probably in my twenties. So, like, the first crime I ever did, I, I, when I was about 19, I bought a license to sell cigarettes. And as you know, in New Jersey, living in New Jersey, Keith, that cigarettes are really expensive there because of the tax stamps. And I used to sell cigarettes as a 19-year-old kid to the Italian Italian mafia in, in, in New Jersey and, and, and New York. They would come down and buy them and buy them from me. And I would write it up as if I was selling it to, like, convenience stores, but I was actually selling tractor-trailer loads of cigarettes. And I'd buy $10,000 worth of, tractor, of cigarettes and sell them to them for $20,000. And it was super cheap for them because then they would just run them up north and smuggle them straight in up north and, and you know, that way. And they were happy because I was getting, I mean, and that, that was like, maybe that was like the first first crime I did. And then I moved from there into selling stolen equipment. I wasn't stealing it myself, but, but you know, and, I, and, I, and that's how I justified, well, I didn't do anything wrong. No, I didn't. It's not my fault. So I think those are like the first, like, little little misdemeanor. Now, that's certainly, selling stolen equipment certainly isn't a misdemeanor. That's a felony. But, but in the cigarette thing, too, actually, that's probably Rico. <laughs> but, but but I did those things, and, and they, seemed, they seemed unimportant to me. They seemed like, eh, negligible, not something that would... It was a big deal to me back in those times. So, so that was the, those are the first crimes, and I did go through that period. Now, so you're you're a chaplain there. We're going to I'm going to get into that in a little bit. Um, but where did Christianity come into your life? Now, when was the first time uh, you heard about it? Um, did you kind of you know grow up in a church? Your parents take you there? Or is it something that you had with you your whole life and just kind of strayed from? 
but where was it? Where did that all start? Your uh, your faith? I, I grew up in a church, like literally. Like I, I went to Bible school every year. I, I, my family was prominent in our little Baptist church, okay. Friendship Baptist Church in Saluda. It's still there, I'm sure. And um, had the same pastor literally for 50 years, literally longer maybe. And um, he's still alive today, actually. And anyway, in that church, it's not like I didn't hear the gospel. I just don't think that I was, I mean, I was just completely inundated by, you know, the Christian faith. But it never touched my heart, I think. maybe, Or maybe it did, and maybe I just walked away. I don't know. I'm not going to tell you. Because I'll tell you, my thing is, I didn't have that. You see, a lot of people have that experience, that, wow, that instant conversion experience. It didn't happen to me. And the instant walk away from Christianity, Christianity wasn't that way over there because I remember being afraid, you know, God's watching me. I should be careful doing this or doing that. I remember being afraid of those sort of things when I was a kid, you know, and like, and I can't say dirty words because God will hear that, that sort of thing. And I remember that when I was a child, which I'm not even sure is a good thing if you want the truth. But teaching children that way, I don't even know if it's a good thing because it didn't work for me. Um, but I do remember when I was in prison. I've been in prison maybe four or five months, and this guy named Roberto Bush, Roberto Bouchiel was a Haitian, man from Haiti, black, 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 blacker than black, with a shiny black head. He spoke perfect English, and he would come to visit me And when I was in prison. He was an Anglican priest, oh, wow. which isn't anything like a Catholic priest, actually, because they can marry and stuff. Now, although I like Catholic priests, I have one of my very best friends in the world is a Catholic priest. And he came to see me, and he began to sing songs to me. You know, he, he, I, he, I told him about my background, you know. And he said, oh, Baptist church, Baptist boy, yeah, that's strict. He said, you know, that's a strict religion. And so he began to sing Baptist church songs to me when I was there. And I, I remember having a, a, a spiritual experience with him there, like, like just like tears. And But I, I think it was a slow process for me, like realizing, like, you know, I've really made a mistake. And... Uh, not just a mistake. I mean, it's, you know, a decade of horrible mistakes. And so, so it was like that for me. And then I didn't know what to do with it. And I, for a long time, for four years, maybe five years, I kept one foot in criminality and the other foot in in spirituality. And and God don't like that. So at some point I had to give it I had to give up the old criminal life to, to, to continue with the new and, and I, like I'm an unlikely chaplain and a lot of Christians don't like me as a chaplain because I, I occasionally or all quite often curse and I'm quick to slap somebody upside the head as well but I'm a, I'm a chip prison chaplain inside hell you've got to understand that and it's a different world here it's not the same on the outside I can't put on a tie and walk around Nobody will, nobody's going to understand that and, and and that's another thing I want to listen to be very carefully all of you the best prison ministers are the ones who used to be in jail because listen because people come in from outside christian ministers come in from outside who've never who've never been involved in in anything illegal or anything like that i've never lived the life that we're living on the inside and say things like this they say well you've all made terrible mistakes but god still loves you and i want to say fuck you is what comes to my mind when they say things like that I'm just being honest with you. And then you get guys that come in and say, like, there's this guy, Ronnie Hepperly. I hope Ronnie won't mind me using his name. He's a minister who was, a, you know, he's from the mountains of Tennessee, just like me. 
he's older than me. He's about, you know, he's a decade or so older than I am. And he comes to visit me here in the prison. And I love that guy because that guy lived the same life I'm living now, or at least close to it. And and he converted to Christ and goes around, you know, and trying to help people change their lives. And that's the guy that affects my life so much, you know. So I think that one of the things that we need to do as, as, uh, in, the, in the prison ministry is get guys who were crooks who've changed their lives to be in there as examples. Because some guy that's lived a squeaky clean life, you know, I mean, he wants to help, and that's a good, and I'm not, I'm not getting down on you. If, you want, if you've lived a squeaky clean life and you want to do prison ministry, please do it. But understand, guys in prison aren't like you. And, and, <laughs> and when you say things like, oh, you guys have made terrible mistakes, but Jesus still loves you, I don't know what other people feel like, but I, that just turns the switch off to me. And so nobody's better than anybody. One sin isn't more important than another one. And uh, people are just people. People, you know, people in prison don't stop being normal human beings just because they get sent to prison. And so, so I mean, that's not really what you asked me about, but I thought it would be an important time to say it. Yeah. So being a chaplain there, or actually tell us how that came about. Um, it was just something you wanted to do. Um, and what was that process like being one of the few Americans in that prison? And next thing you know, you're a chaplain at La Jolla, one of the worst prisons in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a good story, actually. Here's how that went down. So think about this for a minute. For nine years, I ran the Cherokee Public Prison, and I ran it as not as chaplain. I ran it as prison. I, literally, literally my, my position was representative of, of the, the body of inmates. Representante del cuerpo de los, de, de, de los internos, and that means like elected, elected mayor or elected assemblyman of the of the prisoners, and I and I, I carried on. Now, what I did there, I want I want to explain what I did and what God did to me. I arranged the people were killing each other inside the prison, so I arranged to have a directiva, uh, a, a set of directors. And I took one guy out of each gang and I got everybody together and I said, look at, look at here, you bunch of idiots. We're, you guys are fighting each other. You ain't making no money. You guys make money by selling drugs. And so if you're fighting with one of them, you can't sell drugs because there's searches every 15 minutes. Stop fighting. Let's make a peace pact right now. You guys sell all the drugs you want and stop killing each other. Idiots. And it worked. And the prison, the prison the prison director or the prison warden like stood in awe with his mouth open watching as I, I stopped the violence. I didn't stop the drugs, but I did stop the violence. Maybe the drugs even increased, you know. And so, but we stopped the killing on the inside of the prison. And, 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 then, and then there was like guys who had tuberculosis and I got them all in one place and got a, got a bunch of ladies from, from, from Western North Carolina to donate money. And we cured 20, like 19 guys who had tuberculosis. And again, the prison warden had his mouth hanging open like. So they, they literally just gave me the keys to the place and said, do whatever you want to do. And so, and so, so I started making the juice off of, you know, the guys that I gave everybody that was selling drugs their territory and I made the juice. I made money off of that and I was making, and, and if you wanted a special visit, if you wanted a conjugal visit, if you want you pay me and I pay the boss. So, so I was doing good stuff, but I was doing bad stuff too. On Thursday though, one thing I did, that was good. I, I brought in the churches from outside Thursday. I got them to let me have Thursday every, every Thursday, once, once a week. I had first, first, the Catholics came in the morning, 
Marcial Ordonez and his people, and, and Don Fernando and his people came in in the morning. And then uh, Maria Margarita Bonilla from the and and Pastor Pastor Gomez from the I can't believe I remember these things from the from the Seventh Day Adventist Church came. Then the evangelicals came at lunch, like the Pentecostals came at lunch, and then the Mama Lucy from the Catholic Church came back in the in the afternoon. And once a month, the priest, my dear friend Rory Gutierrez, my priest, came. I'm not Catholic, but I was in a way. I mean, like I love that man. I I don't know. Sometimes you meet somebody that you know God's in his. In, you're in the presence of somebody that's godly. And and Rory was like that, and still is like that. Every time I met, every time I saw Rory, I never felt like a lot of priests are very judgmental. Rory wasn't a judgmental man. He was always interested in what was going on, and like we were getting tattoos and stuff, and he would ask me like, "Let me see your tattoos." Like just an interesting guy. He was a guy that was like, you know, wasn't judgmental. He like, you know, wasn't wasn't afraid to get right down in there with the prisoners. You know, just a great man. And um, I don't know what he's doing now. I haven't talked to him in several years, but I love him. Anyway, and then so 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 I did that those things. But I just I like one. That's what I say when I had one foot in the the good and one foot in the bad. So I got I got my head got really big, and I thought that I was untouchable. And God moved me into a real hell, an earthly hell, closest to hell you can get on earth. And that's where I'm. I'm in Sector C. And so here I lost everything. All that pros, I lost my position. I lost my money. I did. I was making five, six thousand dollars a month. I lost that. And, I, and inside a Panamanian prison, man, that makes you like a millionaire. I lost that. I lost my wife. I had this beautiful young wife, twenty-five-year-old wife. You know, I lost that. I lost everything. And and so there was this kid here that was trying to preach. And I say he's a kid. He was, he was like thirty-five years old. But he one day he preached, the next day he's drunk. One day he preached, the next day he's high on cocaine. You know, I mean, he he, he wasn't very put well put together. And his name was Jerry. And so I, there was a kid here that I adopted named Cop Killer. And he's still here. And he's still my son. You ask him, who's your father? Wild Bill. You know. He's this big, mean kid. And he's like 20. He was like 23 then. He's like 27 now. So here's what happened. Here's how I got to be prison chaplain. <laughs> I don't know what happened after a church service that nobody went to. Jerry just screaming crazy things in the, in the, in the middle of the patio. Mata Policia Cop Killer is his name. Ricardo is his real name. Walked down and kicked Jerry in the ass squarely. And I was in my cell, and Jerry came running into my cell. And I had, I'm skipping a part. I had, I had lost everything. Like I said, I had lost everything, and I had nothing. And I was praying and asking God what, he should, what I should do, and he told me to preach his word, and I told him he was insane. Are you out of your mind? I started arguing with God, literally. I'm like, are you out of your mind? Me? They'll laugh at me. I don't give, and God said, I don't give a shit if they laugh. Let them laugh. And, you know, God speaks to me the way in the voice of, in the voice of my high school football coach, <laughs> literally. That's great. He says, I don't give a shit if they laugh at you. Let them laugh at you. And, and I said, well, no, I can't, you know, I can't, you're going to, and I can't, you're going to, or I'm going to kill you. I mean, literally that's, you know, I will snuff out the rest of your life if you don't do what I tell you. Literally. I mean, that's what came to mind. Like, you know, if you continue this, the only reason you've been saved is for this purpose. The only reason I've allowed you to live through all that crazy shit is for this purpose only. So I was like struggling with that in a real way. And so Matt the Policia walks downstairs and kicks, kicks Preacher Jerry in the ass. Preacher Jerry comes running into my cell and says to me, he says, 
I want a knife. You got a knife? And I said, yeah, there's a knife on the shelf. And he's like, and there's a little bitty thing I used to like peel oranges. He's like, no, man, a shank, like a big knife to kill somebody with. I'm like, what do you need a shank for, Jerry? You're the preacher of the church. And he's like, I'm not going to preach anymore. I'm going to kill, I'm going to kill cop killer. I'm like, why are you going to kill cop killer? And he's like, he kicked me in the ass. I'm like, Jerry, you can't, I'm going to say some things that, that really, this is really how it happened. So Jerry, you can't kill the other one because you're the preacher of the church. Remember, you have to be a good boy. And Jerry says, "Fuck the church." I'm like, man, don't even say that. That like hurts my ears. Like, like, I'm like scares me. I don't want that said in my cell. I'm like, literally, it scares me. I don't, I don't know. It seems sacrilegious. And so he said it again, and I'm like, look, get out of my cell. Go on, shoo, 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 get out. And he's like, I'm not the pastor of the church anymore. You're the pastor of the church. And I said, you're out of your mind. I'm not going to be the pastor of the church. And he says, you are. Now you are. I'm not doing it anymore. So I said, Monday morning, I'll see you at church, Jerry. And so I had started organizing the church services, as I did in the old jail, but I wasn't preaching. So Monday morning, rolled around, and I went to go get Jerry for church, and Jerry's like, hi. And I'm like, shit. So I went to church service, and I didn't do anything but sing. I just led a singing service. And everybody came to watch. They were like, Bill is going to preach? I didn't preach. So I come inside, and God said, preach my word. And I said, yeah, you ought to, I, stop this now. We both know I can't be a preacher. And God said, preach my word. And so Wednesday, I went back, and I tried to preach, and I was terrible. It's terrible. I was like, it's terrible, man. And so I come back, and I'm like, look, didn't you see that? I was like, I was shit. I can't preach. You've got to get somebody in here that can preach. And God said, ask Brutua for help. And my neighboring store was this guy named Brutua. And Brutua had been a preacher in the street who turned hitman. It's a long story. So I was like, help me with the church. And so he said, well, I'll, I'll give a message next week, but we'll, give, we'll both give one. You give one, and I'll give one, and we'll do them real short. And so I said, okay. So Brutua preaches, and everybody clapped and applauded, and he was so good. And then I gave a message, and everybody didn't even catch what I was trying to say. You know? So I came in, and I was like, oh, God, look, I'm in so bad. I'm so bad, and I don't want to do this. Let Brutua do it. And he said, God, you're going to do it. So I, I, I stuck it out. I stuck it out from fear of Jehovah, literally, just fear of God Almighty, fear, fear of the Lord, you know, Jesus Christ, Father, our Father. I stuck it out, and then I became, started getting better at it, and then I'm starting to get really good at it, and now I'm like really good at it. And only, it's not me really, it's, it's like the Holy Spirit, but I learned how to just put it in neutral and say whatever God wants me to say. And I've stuck with it three and a half years, three years and eight months. And so. Now, I know there's, there's a Bible verse. Um that talks about how money uh, is the root of evil. Um, thinking of that, I'm sure you're well aware of the verse, uh, what does that verse mean to you looking back on your life? Obviously, um, a hitman for money um, and other things that you've done financially based um, you know, for financial gain. Uh, and what does it mean to you in the present time and even looking uh, more to the future, how the money is the root of all evil? What does that say to you? Well, I think that... <laughs> That verse, for the love of money is the root of all evil. I think that selfishness, you know, that verse is explaining, you know, Jesus Christ only ever gave us two commandments. Love thy neighbor as thyself and love God above everything else. And so if you obey those two commandments, all the other commandments are, it's impossible to break one of the other commandments if you're obeying those two. And that's pretty much what Jesus said. I think that I, I teach... I teach this in church, and I want you to hear. And so, like, I want to read that verse. Hang on, that you just said. First Timothy six ten. For the love of money is the root of all evil, a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Okay, 
I preached this in the, in the church. What you want from me is what God's going to give to you. What you want for other people is what God's going to give for you. So if you want to rob other people, if you want poverty for other people, if you want pain for other people, you better get your ass in gear because that's going to be what you experience as well. I promise you. If you want good things for the people and you work to try to help your fellow man, God is going to help you. It seems, it doesn't seem, that's not worldly wisdom, but it's true. It's just true. It's just true. I mean, for anybody. Try my, try it. The next time you feel in a difficult situation, you feel in, you know, you feel in, you feel like things are not going well for you. Go help somebody. Go find a bum to buy a hamburger for, you know, go find... I don't know. It doesn't not, it doesn't have to be a monetary thing either. You find somebody, find, look, actively look for someone to help. And when you do find them, it doesn't have to be a monetary thing. You don't have to give money to anybody. But when you do find someone to help and you help them, watch and see if your problem doesn't evaporate. <laughs> Strange. But it's true. So the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, it says. Well, I think selfishness is, you know, we're, we're all creatures who learn the fallacy, learn the, the, the anti-wisdom of me, me, me first. And so, I, you know, my, my own, I, I don't think that I'm actually, I was, even when I was being a bad guy, I don't think I was greedy as much as I wanted money just to continue that terrible lifestyle. For some reason, I thought that the lifestyle I was living would sometime eventually make me happy which it never did. It never did. I'm happy now that I'm in prison. I was never happy when I was free, even when I had millions of dollars. So, so I think that it's just a mistake to be greedy, and I think it's also it's also self-destructive because you know whatever you, I teach it all the time. Whatever you want from me is what God's going to give to you. Whatever I, whatever I want from my enemy is what God's going to give to me. And I even said, whatever, whatever you want from me, may God give that to you. And that's a frightening thing for somebody to say, because a lot of times, you know, like if depend, that depends on how your heart is. If your heart's right and you want something good for everybody else, then, then, then I'm blessing you. And if your heart's wrong and you want something bad for everybody else, then I'm cursing you. But it's you who are cursing yourself. It's you who are blessing yourself, depending on how your, if your heart's right or not. Now, most people who follow you on social media, I mean, you post almost every day, um, and a lot of funny things, but you always have this, not always, but you know, most of the time you have this very positive, uh, encouraging attitude. How do you keep that positive attitude up and in a place uh, like a La Jolla? Well, I'll tell you something. I learned a selfish thing. <laughs> I want to be, uh, this is something I do. Listen to this. I, I encourage you to do this. I say to myself, I have a mantra that I say constantly to myself. I want to feel good and I want others to feel good. And I say it a lot when I get pissed off or if I get sad. I say, I want to feel good and I want others to feel good. I say it. Just saying it. Try it right now. Say it out loud. I want to feel good and I want others to feel good. It's really, I don't know, you just feel good when you say it, don't you? And it's a, it's a lifestyle. I mean, because I don't always, I'm not always happy. I don't always wake up ready to go and, you know wanting to, to do this and to do that. I, I don't. But I, I just, you know, fake it till I make it. I, 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 I make myself be happy. Like, you're in control. 
of your responses. You're not in control of your emotions. That's a lie. People say, you're, oh, you're in control of your emotions. You can feel however you want. That's bullshit. Sometimes you feel angry and ain't nothing you can do about it. You feel angry. But what you can do is not act on it. All right? So sadness and depression are two different things, right? And so like sadness is when you feel sad because something's happened or some existential ex- Something happened outside of you, and you're allowing that to change the way you feel on the inside. You're allowing to feel sadness. That's normal. Depression is when you've accepted it. That, that's just that's just how it's going to be, you know. And a lot of people say, "Oh, you don't understand psychology." I, you know, I think psychology is a bunch of bullshit. Antidepressants are a bunch of bullshit. I think that you need to take control of your own mind. That's all that's wrong. Is you've allowed your mind. <coughs> You are not your mind. You decide if you let your mind control you or not. I control my mind, not all the time. Sometimes I fail at that. Sometimes my mind does get the better of me. But I control my mind 99% of the time. And the reason that I can be happy is because of that. When I feel sad, when I I do something, I, I physically do something to make myself feel better. I pray and ask for help. I meditate. I do a lot of meditation as well, Eastern meditation. I don't think there's any conflict between between being a follower of Jesus and being in and and meditating Eastern style meditation. There's no, I don't see any conflict in that at all. I'm not or worshiping another god. I'm just clearing clearing out clearing out the cobwebs of my mind, you know. And I I learned that in order to be happy. It's going to require some effort on my part because sometimes life hands you a shit sandwich and you just got to eat it. But the quicker you eat that shit sandwich, the quicker you get to eat lobster again. So let's just get through it, you know? Bad shit happens, okay? And here's another thing, and I'll, I'll shut up. Here's another thing. This is something I want you to take with you as well. I want to take you. I want you to take the first thing I want you to take with you is when you feel bad, say, "I, f- I want to. F- I, f- I want to feel good, and I want others to feel good." Say it and mean it. You know, say it and like, like put some feeling into it and mean it. It'll change your life. It'll change the way that you begin to act. You'll act differently. Depending on how you think. Like if the next time you feel sadness, stop, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop that shit. You know, I want to feel good. And I want others to feel good. I'm in control. Okay, I'm, I'm in control of Bill. You're in control, you know, of Keith. Listeners are in control of listeners, you know. And so, so that's one thing. And then another thing is when you have a bad day, rejoice, man, rejoice. Because think about this. Many, many times in your life you've had bad days, but rarely do you have two bad days in a row. Usually the next day's great. So you had a shit day. Great. Wonderful. Because tomorrow's going to be cool. You know? Really. I'd be like maybe four or five times in your whole life have you had two bad days in a row. And like normally, bad day, tomorrow's great. Tomorrow's great. So when you're having a bad day, say, shit, thank you, God, because tomorrow's going to be awesome. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, and, and it has to be hard because I know there's gangs there. I mean, there's gangs in every prison, um, but most prison gangs, you know, don't have guns. You know, can, can you talk a little bit about the, the type of gangs that are there uh, and what kind of things are they into? Yeah, gangs here are a lot. You know, gangs, prisoners here are armed with firearms. So it's not like in the States, you know, like some great big tough guy that's good with a knife. Nobody screws with him, right? Well, that doesn't work. That, doesn't, that, that don't fly here because everybody, even some little bitty, you know, girly dude has a gun. So <laughs> I don't have a gun. And it's not like every prisoner has a gun, but I mean, like every gang has a gun. And so, so you got to, it's a different dynamic. You can't piss people off like you can back home. You know, you got to be, you got to be, you got to learn better diplomacy. There's no fist fights. There's no stabbings here. Or like there are stabbings, but no stabbings that people survive from. You know, there's no mid-grade violence. 
there's either nothing or death. And so it's it's a lot different. The gangs are very are not you know, like gangs in back home are really organized. They're not so organized here. Just these guys smoke dope together and, and do cocaine together and they have brought in, you know, ex contraband to sell and so now they're a gang. It's not as it organized. But you gotta be really careful. I mean you really do. I have to be careful every day. And um it's a terrible thing, the gangs. And, and one of the things, my ministry concentrates primarily on getting kids out of the gangs because gangs are, are gangs thrive on kids with low self-esteem that don't know what, don't have any skills. A kid who doesn't have any skills at all is a perfect gang member because he doesn't have any self-esteem. A guy who knows how to, I don't know, carve wood, a guy who knows how to be a carpenter, a guy who knows how to, you know, a dental hygienist is never going to be never going to be a gang member because he has something he has something to provide you know and he, and he can provide for himself gang members most gang members join a gang because they are afraid they can't provide for themselves they need somebody to take care of them and that's why they join a gang member that's not that, that's the truth that's not something people think about and another thing is I want you to have sympathy for the gang members I want you to I'll tell you why you should have sympathy for gang members if you're listening to this I'm not a gang member, and I didn't grow up in that environment. I grew up in a great, wonderful, loving environment, but these kids didn't, did they? Their mother was probably a prostitute and certainly drug-addicted. From the time they were three years old and forward, they were walking in the street alone. They may or may not have went to school, may or may not know how to read and write. What is this kid going to grow up to be, a doctor or a lawyer? Or is he just going to continue in the same lifestyle that his, he, was, he was born into? So have some sympathy for the kids. You know, their problem is that they don't have any self-esteem. So we raise their self-esteem and say, hey, Biddy Bob, you know, you can be something other than just some damn gangbanger. You can be somebody in life. And that's primarily the message that, 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 that my ministry puts out. And people say to me a lot, people say to me a lot, I get a lot, I catch a lot of shit because, like, okay, the Christian groups come in and they say, accept Jesus Christ, and then, then everybody prays and they accept Jesus Christ, and they hug and they leave, and then there's never anything else. That's it. Well, you didn't really change that kid at all. I mean, exactly. like true change comes with an education. Like I can say, let's accept Jesus Christ, and then he says, okay, I accepted Jesus Christ. I say, okay, thank you, and he goes back to smoking dope, and you know. Did anything happen to him, really? Because when you really accept Jesus, doesn't your life change? And if it doesn't change, did it any? Did you really receive salvation? No. No. If you say the magic words and then don't change your life, hey, I got news for you, you didn't get saved. Because when you really have your salvation, there comes a certain change in your life, a desire to be better, a desire to follow Jesus. And, and that's something that that the Holy Spirit does, but it's also something that's the, that the, that the minister, you know, it's an ongoing educational thing that, that the ministry should do for the kids. And that's what I do. And I catch a lot of shit from Christian groups on the outside because my message is one of changing your life. They say, oh no, you, you know, you get them saved and then everything will be okay. It's not true. It's not true. You can't ask somebody, accept Jesus Christ, he accepts Jesus Christ, and you say, okay, if I have a nice day, and you'd leave him there. Nothing happened to him. I mean, the Holy Spirit moved on him, but he don't know what to do. And so so it's an ongoing thing. Like, I have, my, my ministry's tiny. I was only got like, like right now, there's only 15 of us, 14 including myself. 14 plus me, 15 including myself. 
but there's 14 guys that really changed their life. So I'd rather have 14 guys who accept Jesus and change their life than 14,000 who say they've accepted Jesus Christ and have no change at all. Because I'm sorry, but that ain't real salvation. And, and inside that place, I mean, people are trying to do positive things there, and they're, obviously there's shootings and there's gang activity, uh, gang, gang activity in every prison. But you know, inmate to inmate shooting, and uh, I know you know a guard recently got shot by by an inmate there. Um, where do we put the blame on this? Well, as we talked about earlier, the, the, the kids here have guns and they shoot each other and stuff, and so it's just like really madness, isn't it? But. Um, It's, you know, the, the cops have the, are, the, are the ones to blame, the cops, because the cops bring all the drugs and guns into the prisons here and sell them. Family members can't smuggle in drugs and guns. They're searched even naked, you know, I mean, like on, in the visit. It's the cops that bring the guns in here and give the cops bring drugs. Here's how it works. The cops bring drugs in like large, large quantities, kilograms, many kilograms of drugs in and, and front them. To the street gangs on the inside to to sell, but the street gangs on the inside need protection for that drugs, and need need ways to dominate their fellow man, fellow inmates, and so the cops bring them guns as well. It's a long story, but cops are not giving you know, and, and this isn't it's not the Panamanian policy. It's not the government's policy to sell drugs. We're talking about corrupt corrupt officials, corrupt police officers. So, like, they bust somebody right on the outside, and they bust somebody, and they got, like, 250 kilograms. So they report 225, and they take 25 kilograms and bring them to the, the jail to sell. They drop them off, and the guys sell the drugs, and then they come back two weeks to get their money, and they bring more drugs. And then and it just perpetuates. And so it's a really difficult and dangerous situation because it's the police who bring in the drugs here, who cause the, the gangs, who give the gangs, you know, Firearm. Give the games firearm. It happened. It, it it blew up in their face the other day because the guys killed a cop, and that was just incredible. The cops came down on us so hard. Like I mean, me, I ain't got nothing to do with that. You know, nothing to do with that. Cops come into myself, smash up all my shit, throw my clothes on the floor, pour, pour Clorox on my clothes. Um, uh, threw. I had like I've got like sixty books here. They threw books on in the in the corner. The cops pissed on my books, literally, with urinated on my books. Um. Why am I ask why is this happening? Because you killed a cop. You guys, you bunch of damn prisoners killed a cop. I didn't kill a cop. I don't have anything to do with that. Why would you be doing that to me? You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm like running a church, man. You know, so it's just a situation run by it's a, it's a situation ran by people who have no idea how a prison is supposed to be run, nor the, the, the purpose of a prison. The purpose of I got news for you all listening. The purpose for a prison ain't punishment. The purpose for a prison is rehabilitation and re-socialization. These are people that are sooner or later going to be free again. They go to the street. Six months are in the street to kill somebody else to come back to jail. Is that what we're trying to do? Because that's what punishment does. Punishing the shit out of prisoners does that. You listening? Punishing prisoners creates monsters who go to the street, come back, and kill again. Is that what we're trying to do here? I thought we were trying to rehabilitate people. That you can only do through love. And if you don't love the people you're trying to rehabilitate, you can't hate them into changing. You listening? You know, that's probably been um, the thing I shout the loudest. You know, the lack of rehabilitation in prison. People listen to my podcast. They, They hear it over and over again almost every week. You know, the prison is not a place of torture. Yes, people have done some horrible things, but this is where they're supposed to be rehabilitated, you know, not made worse. Uh, and I mean, let me ask you this. I mean, I was just talking about suicide the other day with somebody, a high suicide rate in even American prisons. Or when somebody gets let out of prison, usually right from, you know, um, um, 
solitary confinement for months to a year, right to the free world, free world uh, it's 70% a suicide rate uh, for those people let out of uh, prisons right from solitary confinement. Uh, what's, what's it like there? I mean, do you see a lot of suicides um, at your facility? Yeah, there is a pretty high suicide rate. I mean, I think it's about 1%. Like one out of every 100 who come in here kill themselves. Happened recently, actually. A kid tried. I cut the rope myself. He tried to hang himself, and he didn't. A guy named Christian Mello. He tried to hang himself, and I, and I caught. Literally, he he came like they caught everybody screaming, "Bill, Bill, 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 Bill!" And I come out of my cell, and he's he's tied his rope to the to the banister here, it's like a steel banister. He's tied his rope to the banister, and he he luckily he didn't jump off. He like let himself down. Like I, like, I don't know what he was thinking. If you want to hang yourself, usually you jump off so you break your neck. But he was, like, strangling there. And I literally cut the rope. I come inside, and I got a, a razor blade and come back and cut the rope. And he fell 10 feet down and broke his ankle when he fell, but he didn't die. So that happened, oh, I don't know, a month ago, three weeks ago. So so that, I've still got him here. I have him here with me. I told him, I told him, bring me in. And, so, and he's doing okay right now. Young kid, 22 years old, got shot in the head, not completely well. Like, he, his mental capacity is there, but he, he can't. His right arm doesn't work very well, and his right leg is at 70%, I'd say. His left arm and his left leg are at 100%, and he can talk and think and everything. But, but um, you know, it's a, it's a tough situation. But he doesn't have a long sentence either, and that's what I was trying to tell my kid. You know, these are things that maybe we can rehabilitate, you know. And he's gotten a lot better walking. I mean, he walks almost normal with just the slightest limp now. So we're working on him, you know. Suicide's a problem here. And, like, I, I, there was one time this kid was told the cops, I'm going to I'm gonna kill myself. And they're like, hurry up and do it. And he did. And I'm like, look, you bunch of heartless motherfuckers. Forgive my language. Look, you know, the kid said he was going to kill himself, and he did. you gotta, you got to take that shit seriously. How difficult is it to make money there? Um, and what are you doing now uh, to bring money in? Well, you know, I talked about that earlier. I, I, ran, I, I organized all the gangs and just took the juice off of it. And I, I put myself in a leadership position. And, and I'm in a leadership position here as well, but I don't take any money from gangs today. They even try to give me money. I tell them no. So, like, right now I get most of my money through donations and people. And, and I sell my book, Long Live the King Wild Bill. Like, I don't, you know, initially, most of my, almost all my income was illegal activities. Even when I was running the church the first five years, like 2010 to 2015. But, I, you know, I, I cleaned my act up and, and, and I'm doing things right. And I have been now for, you know, a long time. Like, like when I say a long time, like five years. And so I haven't taken a legal dime from anybody in way over five years. So, so I mean, like all my like people give me money. I don't know. God provides is the, is the short answer. I don't even know how I do it. God provides. But I sell a book which hasn't been terribly popular, even though it's everybody that's ever read it's like gushed over it. Thought it was a great thing, but but it, but but it's not been. I've not been able to market it successfully. I have a YouTube channel, and I hope this gets in your thing. I have a YouTube channel. I want everybody to come and visit. It's a prison diary thing, and I was doing good with it. I, I was getting thousands and thousands of views, and some of the prisoners here heard it and heard me talk about some of an, a thing that happened here, and they threatened to kill me. And you got to take that shit seriously here. They called me and said, if you continue to talk about what goes on in the prison, we're going to kill you. So I've had to 
change it from what goes on in prison to a daily audio diary um, about my life only and like the things I come in contact with. It's dangerous, you know. I'm in a dangerous situation. I would I would never thought in a million years that any of the Panamanian prisoners would have been able to hear, see it, hear it, understand what I said. But I guess YouTube does the whole thing where they put a subtitle on it. So I went from getting thousands and thousands and thousands of views to getting 50 and 100 views. <laughs> because um, because of what people want to hear about is the you know the, the gang operations. But it's still interesting. And it's still, I hope you guys will come, go check it out. It's called Life Inside Hell. Life Inside Hell. I'm going to give uh, I'm going to give Keith the the link as well. Maybe Keith will put it up there for me. And there's also, you can pull the description box down on each episode. And there's ways to contact me directly and links to my book. So the only link for this show that's really important is the the Life Inside Hell. Life Inside Hell, it's my prison audio diary. It's fairly interesting. And I've got I've got a really loyal following who I love each one of them. You know, I've got like maybe 100, 200 people who listen to me every day. And I just love those guys. And it's a blessing to me and then to them as well. So the short answer is, I don't know how I make money God provides. Uh, there, there you go. Um, if you were released today or in the near future, 10, 15 years, um, would that still be a temptation for you, you think? Um, do something, you know, a, a crime uh, for money, like a lot of money, whether it be, hey, I can, you know, this opportunity presented itself and, man, I've been out for a year. I haven't made money. I haven't made any money. I can't get a job. I'm starving over here. Um, is that a, still be a temptation uh, for you? Or you think, you know, nope, no temptation, doesn't matter what I'm going through, how hungry I am or how much um, I, or how I can't get a job, I don't have a house to live in, I'm homeless. Is that still a temptation as far as to commit um, violent acts uh, as, as far as to, to make a living, uh, kind of like the old days, if you will? I think that you have to evade the answer. The answer, short answer, is you have to put yourself in a situation where that is impossible. Because even you would do that. You can say whatever you want, brother. But I mean, if you're in a position of starving to death, you're going to do whatever you have to do to survive, aren't you? I mean, anybody listening to this would anybody listening to this not do what you said? I mean, you know. So what you have to do in order to continue to be a good citizen is not ever let yourself get in that situation because anybody in the situation that you just described is going to do whatever's necessary starving if you're in a starving position you know <laughs> maybe you don't know what it's like to starve i do i have done it i have had that situation that i have had that pressed upon me so i know what starving is and i think that nobody probably nobody listening to this program has ever been in the position that you just described. And until I came to Sector C, I'd never been in that position. I certainly didn't. I wasn't a criminal because I was starving. I was a criminal because I was a greedy asshole. So, but I also think with the set of skills that God has allowed me to have, you know, I'm a good speaker, I'm a good writer, I'm a good entertainer, I'm a good, uh, I'm even a fairly decent pastor. I don't think that I'll ever be in a situation where I'm starving. So I'm going to do everything possible to not to work. You know, the Bible says, he who doesn't work, let him not eat. And then, and then a diligent man will come before kings. So I'm pretty sure I'll always be before the kings of the earth because I'm a diligent man. I certainly ain't starving here. If I ain't starving here and I ain't doing nothing bad. Hey, buddy, if you're in Sector C and you ain't starving, it's because you ain't going to starve anywhere. Because if you ain't going to starve here, brother, you ain't going to starve nowhere. And I'm here 
in the worst position. I mean, like you turn me loose on the street tomorrow, I'll never be in any position on the outside as difficult as I am on the inside, and I'm not doing anything illegal. Does that make sense? I'm not ever going to be in a more difficult position than I am right now, and I'm not doing anything illegal to gain money. So I don't think that it's going to be a problem when I get out in a much easier situation. As horrible as conditions there, again, with the lack of, of water and basic necessities. You had mentioned to me earlier, uh, I think yesterday, um, that you're actually going to lead a hunger strike. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, and do you think something like that will work in a, in a facility uh, like you're in? As far as with the authorities, everything ever fought and won in prison has been won through hunger strikes. That's just the way it works. So I don't know how effective it's going to be or not, because I'm trying to get the international media involved, and they don't give a shit about what happens here. But nobody gives a shit about what happens in a Panamanian prison. People just don't care about what happens here. And uh, people in Panama don't care, and people in America and the first world don't care. Nobody cares what happens. In, and I don't think people in general give a shit what happens in prison, period. Americans certainly don't care about what happens to prisoners until they find themselves in prison and they shit all over themselves. You know? Hey, guess what? Everybody in prison ain't guilty. You hear that? Everybody in prison ain't guilty, so this could happen to you. So, I mean, there's a really high percentage of people who are not guilty in these prisons. But I think it's a low percentage in the States, but I bet you it's higher than 5 or 10%. I bet at least 10% of the people in American prisons aren't guilty, at least. So think about that. Prison, prison conditions don't affect you until they arrest your son and put him in jail for something he didn't do, and until they arrest your, your, your sister and put her in, in prison for something she didn't do. And now prison, prison conditions affect the shit out of you. But people generally don't, give a, don't care what happens to prisoners, and you hear people say really ignorant things, which I have repeated myself. Uh, they ought to kill them all. They ought to, they, ought to, they ought to take them out back and shoot them, you know. And, and I re- repeat again and again and again, what you want from me, may God give you multiplied. So if that's what you want from me, I hope that's what God gives you. And if, and if you want good things from me, that's what I hope God gives for you. And that may or may not be the right attitude, but it's mine. And it, and it, it works for me because whoever you are and whatever you think about me, I want good things for you. Really, I want you to prosper. I want you to feel good. I don't have any hatred towards you. Anybody that ever wronged me in the past, hey, thank you for the lesson. I don't have any problems, you know. Ex-wives, God bless them, you know. I hope they're doing well. Everybody. So, hunger strike. Really hard, man, because we're trying to get people to understand that there's an actual soft torture facility in the Republic of Panama, and nobody cares. And not only does nobody care, they systematically don't care. The U.S. Embassy knows about this place and loves it. Because, like, for instance, they put a kid in here the other day. I had an American guy here with me, uh, a guy from Florida. And he he was just he was such a lovely man, just a, a wonderful, he became my dear friend. And and they put him in here, and then they come to ask him, you want to stay there or you want to come back and cooperate? And, like, <laughs> it's a perfect tool, isn't it? Sector C is a great tool because anybody's like, I want to go home and cooperate, you know, after just a little time here. And that's how it's run. That's how, that's how they do it. They, they, stick, they stuck a, Paki, a Pakistani jihadist in here a couple of years ago. He didn't last eight months until he was screaming. He's ready to turn it in his own mother. You know, <laughs> get, me out, get me out of here. Get me out of here. You know. So, so why would the Americans ever want to help Sector C help, help us to gain human, human rights? And I want you to be real. I want you to understand that, that the punishment for prison is going to prison. That's the punishment. 
Prison's not supposed to be a punishment. Losing your freedom is the punishment. Exactly. Yeah. Prison's supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about rehabilitation. That's what the law says. And so, when I killed people for money, they said that was wrong, and they were right because I broke the law, and they put me in prison for that. But then, when it says that I have human rights, and they say fuck your human rights, then somehow they're they're just, but they're breaking the law too. Why can they break the law, but I can't? I don't understand. Uh, obviously, you have a voice there, whether you're leading something or uh, I know you're writing also. Um, Long Live the King Wild Bill. I see a book on Amazon, uh, which you gave me a little shout-out in. Thank you for that. Uh, are you currently working on anything else? I wrote a book called Concentration Camp 2000, and it's a complete and total expose about what really goes on inside Panamanian prisons. And it's, it's, there's, there's, there's three parts to it. There's the La Jolla Massacre that happened here and where 15 inmates were killed in a, in a gun battle with AK-47s between prisoners on the inside. That was totally explained. It was the bloodiest day in the history of the small nation of Panama. Fifteen murders in one day. There's only four million people here. I mean, this is a, this is a country the size of the city of Jacksonville, Florida, or Charlotte, North Carolina. It's a tiny country. So 15 murders in one day is like a, you know, that's the record. And um, I wrote a, I wrote a, I wrote the, I wrote a real journalistic, 100% true account of what happened and why it happened and how it happened. How could that even happen? Well, if you want to know, it's in concentration camp 2000. Then I wrote about my experiences in Sector C and how I got here and what happened to me here. And then I wrote about the things that, what you know, my ministry teaches, what I've, what I've developed, the system that I've developed that helps get, get kids out of gangs. I'm trying to get that published. I mean, I could publish it through Amazon, but I really would like, you know, I'd really like to get it published in a non-self-publishing way. I'd like to be a published author. I think it's well-written, actually. So if anybody in your audience is listening and would like to, you know, publish it or know anybody that would like to publish please contact me. Um, I'm not working on any anything else right now. I've written these, I've been a, sooner or later I'm going to publish a book of these musings. I write something, five times a week I write a devotional, five times a week, and it's actually, it's an interesting devotional, you know, it's a no-nonsense, no-bullshit devotional, and and I've got, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of them together, and so I thought I would choose the 100 best devotionals, and, and, and they're like, not for, they're not necessarily religious um, and I thought I would publish them at some point, but I haven't got around to that yet. And so, so anyway, but anybody interested in, in reading Concentration Camp 2000 for the purpose of publishing it, please get a hold of me. For sure. Um, if you didn't get caught, um, do you think you would eventually kind of, you know, whether your faith crept back into your life and you ended up on the straight and narrow, uh, do you think you would have continued the lifestyle that you're living, whether you hit me in lifestyle or you know, taking over properties or uh, whatever it may be, uh, how do you think you would have turned out if you'd never uh, got caught? I think that, I think if I hadn't went to prison, I'd have been murdered or died of some accident. I was living like an insane life, you know. Somebody would have killed me or, so, or I would have killed myself in an accident. Or I would have died from natural cause. I mean, you can't do drugs and drink booze and eat like I was doing, you know, and live <laughs> not very long. So God saved my life, sending me to prison. I'm thankful. I don't want to be in prison. I want out. But 
but I see the wisdom in what the Lord's done in my life. I'm not, I'm thankful for Him sparing me. He's, I mean, he, he saved my life by sending me to prison. So, so thank you, God. At some point in time, I'll be free again. I'm sure that's a 100%. I don't know when, but we're still fighting that. But, but whenever that is, the time that I get to enjoy after being out of prison is all gravy because I would have been murdered easily in the next three or four years doing what I was doing. You just can't, just can't act that way without somebody else killing you. So, so God has His infinite wisdom, and I accept His. I, say, I accept the Lord's correction. The Bible says, "Don't, don't uh, menosprecio." I, say, I, I read my Bible in Spanish. Don't, don't complain about the Lord's correction. It says in in, in Proverbs. And so I'm thankful for God's correction. What would you say to somebody who is maybe about to embark on a life of crime, um, or maybe somebody who's already made a lot of money from a life of crime? Um, what would be your advice to them, whether they're about to start it, whether they're just a young kid starting to get in trouble? Uh, what advice would you give to them? What would you say um, before they got themselves a, a little too deep? You know, again, all for the love of money, so to speak. Hey, you know, I think that I hope everybody understands that when I, I was rich, I had it the best you've ever heard of any criminal in your life. I had it. I had a million dollars stuff, in, a million dollars in cash under the bed. I went to bed every night with four or five naked women and a mountain of cocaine. I ate caviar. I smoked $100 cigars. I had everything you ever wanted. I drank Marquita Riscal, wine that, that cost $100 a bottle. I drank three or four of them a day. And I was miserable. So if you want a terrible, miserable life that ends up in prison or death, be a criminal. It's a great thing if that's what you want. But if you want to be happy, have a family, be wealthy, have money that nobody can take away from you, stay as far away from criminality as you can. And that's just the truth. Um, any final thoughts? Uh, first, thanks you know, obviously for your time. Uh, you're always generous with that. I always enjoyed talking to you. Uh, any last thoughts you want to share with everybody uh, before we hang up? Two things. One, uh, one, I'd like to say that the law of the harvest says that if you're unhappy with your life right now, and I don't care what's happening to you in your life, it's a product of your own actions. If you, and, and some people might say that that's callous, like somebody with cancer or somebody that had a loved one die. or you know, There are things that happen that are out of our control, but 95% of the bad things that happen to us are our own faults and, and fruits of our own planting. So I want you to ask yourself, what kind of seeds are you sowing today? Are you sowing good seeds? And if you're not, be aware that the law of the harvest says you reap what you sow later than you sowed, more than you sowed it. So if you're sowing hatred today, you're going to reap hatred later on down the line and more of it than you sowed. But if you're sowing love and good things, then you're going to reap that. If you stop sowing bad seed today and in the future you only begin sowing good seed, at some point in time, it may take a long time, but the bad fruits are going to stop coming. It might take 20 years, but at some point in time, if you stop sowing bad seed today and you sow only good seed from now on now on in the future, at some point those bad seeds are going to stop coming to, to fruit. I want you guys to come and visit me on at, long, at Life Inside Hell on YouTube. I'm going to give Keith the link and maybe he'll be as good to stick it in the description box. Or you can just go on to YouTube and search for Life Inside Hell. I love you guys. Thank you guys for listening. If you have anything, you know, if you want to contact me directly, go on Life Inside Hill. Pull the description box down. There's all my contact information. Thanks, Keith, for having me on the show, brother.
I appreciate all the help you've given me. You give me a lot of help in, in my in my writing career, and a lot of help, and you know, even and I, I help. I don't even want to talk about online. I'm just really thankful for you, brother. God bless you and your family. All right. Well, there we go. Our conversation with Wild Bill Hulbert from a Panamanian prison. I mean, think about that. He's in a, a, the worst section of the Panamanian prison, which is bad itself. And he's talking to me on a cell phone uh, through the WhatsApp. Uh, it's it's absolutely mind blowing. And again, cell phone blockers there, so you have to you know go to certain areas. And if they really, really uh, um, are trying to shake things up there, the guards, you know, they'll, they'll crank up those cell phone blockers. Uh, which think about it. I mean, why don't they do it all the time? You know, crank them all the way up so no one can use the phone. It's just such a corrupt place over there. It's it's so corrupt. I mean, the only good thing about being so corrupt is um, you got enough money, you can get stuff in to survive a little better, like a cell phone um, and numerous other things, which have things I can't even talk about. Um, but anyway, uh, Wild Bill is very accessible. Um, on Instagram, Holiness Bill, uh, you can reach him there. Um, very friendly, very outgoing. Uh, he'll definitely respond to you as long as you know you're nice and polite, not rude or anything. Uh, his new YouTube page, uh, Life Inside Hell. Make sure you give that a, a subscribe. Uh, and tell me you heard the podcast. If you want to say hello to Wild Bill, reach out. Uh, he'll definitely uh, respond to you. Again, as long as you're you know nice and polite, not uh, rude or anything. Um, again, not being rude to a hitman is you know just probably the the wiser option <laughs> to do. Um, but he's a funny guy. Uh, he should respond to you again if you if you reach out to him. Life inside hell YouTube holding this bill on Instagram. Uh, again, tell me you heard it, him on the podcast. You enjoyed it, uh, and I hope you did enjoy it. And all the other podcast, uh, all the other episodes we uploaded here on the podcast. Uh, thanks for all uh, your support. Continue to share, um, get the word out. We want to keep growing and growing and growing. Uh, again, a lot of good stuff coming up. So again, thanks everybody for tuning in, and until next time, see ya!